like from my perspective, I had just seen Patrick slide, you know, 50 yards, however far it was, and hit rocks, and there was dust that flew up in the air. Patrick's either severely injured or like something is up. Like there's no way that he's okay from that fall. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, trying to help you find adventure every day in any stage of life. You're going to hear from explorers, adventurers, business owners, and anyone living their life a little more out of the box than usual. How many times is the term thrown around that anything is possible? Every once in a while, we get to meet people who are examples of that, who are actually doing it. And today, we're talking to Michael Shelver and Patrick Murtis, who have been living with type 1 diabetes for most of their lives, since they were children. And I understand for a lot of people, when, when you get diagnosed with something, or, or you find out you have something, uh, a condition or uh, injury, it feels a lot of times more limiting than it actually is. You know, you, you say, oh, I can't do my one thing I love to do anymore. And as you know, we've heard it a thousand times on this show. Sometimes it's an injury. Sometimes it's something like being diagnosed that forces you in a different direction with your life and helps you discover new passions. So today, I, I hope you enjoy the story. It's full of adventure. It's full of uh, endurance and determination and perseverance. And I'd really appreciate if you check these guys out, project50and50.org. Their achievement is amazing. They climbed the U.S. 50 high points, um, which is every state's high point, in just 49 days, driving over 17,000 miles to make it happen. Pretty crazy. So congratulations to them. They literally just finished like a couple weeks ago and did this interview right away. So I appreciate it, guys. Congrats once again. And also wanted to say thank you to the folks that make this show happen. First of all, our, our patrons. Natalie uh, just became a patron. Thank you so much uh, for pledging. It just blows me away that we're even worth, you know, somebody's dollar or $5 a month. I, it still blows my mind. So uh, thank you for that. If you would like to become a patron, links in the show notes. It's uh, patreon.com slash Podcast. And also to our sponsors, Athletic Brewing, the makers of non-alcoholic craft beer, uh, brewing without compromise so that you can maintain your fitness or sobriety goals but still be able to taste great craft beer. And as well as CS Instant Coffee, the makers of 100% Arabica and 100% compostable packaging coffee packets you can take you can take with you take it with you on the 50 US high points. But all right, let's get into this interview. Um, if you guys don't mind, wh- where are you coming from today, respectively? So I'm in Raleigh, North Carolina currently. Okay. And then I'm in Concord, California, which is kind of just east of San Francisco. Okay. Is, is that home for, for both of you, or are you both traveling? That's a good question. So I'm kind of a, a man of the world right now. I, uh, I spend quite a bit of time in western North Carolina, and then quite a bit of time in Nashville, Tennessee. Very cool. And then I, this is considered my hometown. I just finished graduate school in Norway and then did this Project 50 and 50. So now I'm kind of looking for employment and seeing where that takes me. So it's my temporary hometown at the moment. You've had quite a summer then. 
Yeah, definitely. Wow. You're in Colorado, Mason? Yeah, I'm kind of right in between y'all, sort of. I'm based in uh, Denver. Um, but I'm actually, my family's from Western Carolina, a little town called Brevard. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I uh, I run a nonprofit in the Western Carolinas, well, kind of all over North Carolina, and my counterpart lives in Brevard. So are you a, are you a big mountain biker? Oh, man, I didn't, that's so cool. Yeah, yeah, I actually am. And I know that's a big, almost a mecca, um, but I, I love to mountain bike out here and yeah, absolutely. This is my uh, my backyard. So, man, guys, well, I appreciate you coming on and making uh, literally coast to coast work. Um, this is it's so cool what technology allows us to do, and not only interviews, but uh, honestly, it, what it allows you guys to just have completed uh, doing <laughs> just something crazy, in my opinion. First of all, it's crazy just to do it, but despite the fact that you have type 1 diabetes, uh, I have one of my best friends deals with that every day, and we were just we were just at lunch the other day, and he unbuttons his shirt and shoots up, looks like he's, you know, people glaring over at him like, what the heck, is a guy doing heroin right here? <laughs> so, yeah. so for you guys, uh, can you, you, feel free, whoever wants to answer these questions, y'all can jump back and forth. Um, where, where did this idea come from? And um, how did you guys meet? Let's go back to that. How'd you guys meet? All right. Um, so Patrick and I both have worked for, well, we, we were working for an organization called Diabetes Youth Families, which is a nonprofit based out of Concord, California. And they do summer camps and then trips for children, families, and teens with type 1 diabetes um, in Kings Canyon National Park. And I had been working um at this organization for a few years and then patrick had had, uh, started working for the organization and interestingly we never actually worked together with programs or anything but one time we were at up at the summer camp and decided to go on a backpacking trip and like three days later it had just kind of cool and also wanted to do very similar things and just kind of gelled super well so that's kind of how we met um and then patrick i'll let you kind of talk about how we how the trip came to be. Sure. So I had just hiked the John Muir trail, um, last summer and I kind of came off this expedition on a high. And, uh, one of the first people I called was Michael because he, he also through hiked the, the JMP. And I had this idea. I had recently started this nonprofit and I had this idea of putting on kind of a big fundraising expedition in which we could involve the type one community. You know, Michael and I had thrown around some ideas of what what could be a big expedition that we could do together that would really involve the greater type one community as a whole. Um, and Michael had just come across, uh, Colin O'Brady just set the world record for doing the 50 high points in the shortest amount of time, um, which was released that summer. And we thought that this could be something that would be both physically, mentally, logistically challenging, where we could involve people from across the country. Um, And starting in August of 2018, we started putting pen to paper. Uh, By October, we had our very first sponsor, and that's when things started to get uh, very real. And sure enough, (laughs) here we are, you know, sitting at our respective homes, having completed this this monumental expedition. (laughs) I'm sure it was a little bit when you first got that sponsor, it was like, awesome. And also, ah, crap, we got to do this now. <laughs> yeah, it was It was definitely bittersweet. It, it definitely, um, it, you know, it was very exciting 
getting kind of a bigger partner on board uh, and really helped us get the momentum that we needed to sign on other sponsors. But very much at the same time, it was like, all right, this is really happening. I think I very specifically remember us having a conversation where we had just finished chatting with with Dexcom, which was the sponsor that kind of offered up their their um, money to to make this project possible. And we kind of like had this conversation where it was like, if we if we agree to this, you know, it's we we do it. This is it. Like, um, there's no kind of going back or or canceling it out. So that was yeah, that was kind of like the first big step. We were like, okay, it's happening. Like. We're gonna be climbing fifty mountains in fifty days, and uh, and this is it. Yeah, it was it was an interesting kind of nervous but exciting moment. A lot of people don't realize it if they've never tackled something this big. But sometimes getting a yes from somebody, or you see, oh my god, this actually could happen, is almost scarier than just dreaming about doing it. And so it takes a certain level of courage to actually start moving forward with the plans after a big breakthrough like this. Um, Especially when, you know, it's a year out and you need at least a year to plan something like this, especially because of uh, the fact that you both, both of you deal with type one diabetes, both of your, what was your biggest concern as you got ready for this? Um, Was it dealing with type, having to deal with type one or was it more like logistics around just the normal, you know, mountaineering type stuff? What was it for each of you that, that was your biggest concern looking towards this trip yeah i'll go ahead and start so i've got a pretty extensive backcountry resume where i've done a lot of you know i previously worked for outward bound for about two and a half years where you know i led expeditions and i also worked pretty in depth in the diabetes community where i was leading backpacking trips for teens that are living with type one but in terms of the actual mountaineering aspect uh, this was a world that was brand new to me, where <laughs> a lot of the training came by fire, um, where Michael was actually kind of the one imparting a lot of his knowledge to me real time, uh, both kind of during training climbs, and then we were, we were actually on the expedition itself. So we had procured enough sponsorship funding for this project to actually uh, come together and then in the springtime is when we actually found the windows where we could actually do some training climbs with some uh, technical mountaineering skills. So that was probably the scariest time for me was, you know, this project is happening. Am I going to be at the fitness level that I need to be to be actually pull off 50 high points within 50 days, learning, you know, these new skills that include glacial travel and crevasse rescue and uh, you know, minor class four climbing, probably the, the thing that kind of sat over my head the, the most. But once we got a couple of those training climbs under our belt and I started building confidence in my skills and my abilities, uh, I knew pretty quickly that this was going to be something that we were going to be able to pull off. Yeah, I think for me, Patrick coming into it with lots of backcountry experience, but less so the technical experience was definitely kind of a kind of a bit of a, a challenge or uh, something that I was I wouldn't say uneasy about, but I was nervous for him to, to, I wanted to make the trip, at least the technical parts as, as comfortable as possible for him. So that meant, um, really kind of brushing up on my skills and making sure that I was being a competent guide while he was being a really attentive and uh, student. But, uh, I think the biggest challenge or the thing that made me the most nervous was two things. 
And one was accumulated exhaustion that would happen over these 50 days. And then um, also just the logistical challenge of it, especially since we were involving the diabetic community at the time. Um, so I'll start with the exhaustion. But um, I just very vividly remember I climbed Denali in 2017. And um, I very, very vividly remember like getting home from that expedition, which was two weeks and sitting on the couch being exhausted for two or for 10 days or something like that, where I just didn't want to do anything. I was so tired. And for me, once we had finished Denali, we still had 49 peaks to go. Um, so it was kind of like, you've just done an expedition and Jeez. now you're, you still have 49 remaining to just wrap your mind around that and to think about how exhausted you'll be at the end of it was kind of very intimidating for me. Um, and we kind of figured that out along the way, but you kind of get into this rhythm of looking at it one day at a time instead of looking at it as a 50-day project. And that really helps you get through it is breaking it into smaller pieces. Um, but yeah, that was that was really intimidating before the start of the trip was just to think to yourself, like, we've got to do an expedition that most people train for, for their whole lives and then that's it. And we've once we've done that, it's like we get on a plane and we've we've got the rest of the project. That's just the starting point. Um, and then also the logistical challenge of it all is, you know, the climbing is one thing, but the, the amount of transportation, the driving, the flying, communicating with everyone while we're moving so quickly, um, that was really intimidating to me because what we had done at the, the as soon as we, we had enough um, momentum to get the trip funded and going, we basically allowed people to sign up so they could join us in their states. Um, certain climbs were kind of like Patrick and I would do on our own due to the technicality of it. But we had about 35 peaks to where we invited people of the diabetic community or people that were supporters of T1D to come join us and climb. And that meant that we had to constantly communicate with these people to make sure they knew where we were, what trailhead we were going to be at, and everything like that. Um, and just doing that while also climbing and driving and putting putting the whole project into motion was was really kind of intimidating to me. Um, and I think that it was definitely, definitely not so much physically challenging, but kind of just logistically challenging throughout the whole trip to, to keep things organized and not fall far behind. Yeah. When you start to think about this, which I'm sure you guys obviously did, especially after getting that, that crucial sponsor in, you lay in bed at night and think, oh my God, like, how many miles are we going to have to drive? How much gear are we going to have to have? How much food? And, and logistically, this is going to be a, an adventure in itself to pull off, much less to actually do the climbing and hiking portion of it. Um, you know, for someone who isn't aware, maybe just someone like me who who has friends with type 1, and, you know, my wife's a teacher. She has some students every couple years that, you know, maybe a couple have type 1. Um, what is some of the unique challenges of dealing with that on something like this? And, and, and are you, is your community have kind of a range of recommended activities, um, that you guys were trying to kind of break the mold of, if you know what I'm saying? Like, is this just totally out of the norm for type one or is there people all over the world doing stuff like this with type one diabetes? Um, I, uh, Patrick, do you want to speak on it or do you want me to speak on it? Or I can, we can kind of split it up. Uh, I, I think it probably warrants kind of taking a step back, just kind of defining type 1. Sure. You know, I think when a lot of people hear diabetes, what they're immediately probably thinking of is type 2 diabetes, which is totally fair because 
95% of people that are living with diabetes are actually living with type 2 diabetes. Now, type 1 historically used to be called juvenile diabetes, and it's actually a very different disease than, than type 2. And actually what's happening there is it's an autoimmune disease where your immune system, for whatever reason, which science is close to figuring out why, um, actually attacks uh, a part of your body that creates a hormone called insulin. And with type 1 diabetes, you no longer produce that hormone, so you have to give it artificially. And you can either do that wearing uh, an insulin pump or through something called MDI or multiple daily injections where you're giving shots all the time. So basically, anytime you're eating food, anytime you're exercising, anytime you're stressed, anytime you're happy, uh, you've got to take into effect or take into effect what's going on with your insulin levels and also what your what your blood glucose is at. So it's a it's a 24/7 condition. You never get a day off. It's something that you always kind of have to have going processing in your mind. Um, so when you add in some a challenge like Project 50 and 50, uh, there's a whole another layer of of challenges that that uh, is added to the expedition itself. I'll let Mike take it over from there. Yeah. So kind of going back to your original question of asking about like how many people or like what kind of are the limitations that, that are recommended for diabetics or kind of like from, from the community of diabetics, kind of what is, what is the norm Um, there? We are luckily in an age where social media has kind of allowed people to see that, that there's tons of tons of T1Ds out there or type one diabetics that are doing really, really cool things. You've got people that are running 200 mile races. You've got people that are sailing um, across oceans with diabetes. You've got kind of the full spectrum. There, there tends to be kind of far and few um, with that. I would say that like the majority of type one diabetics sometimes feel a limitation as to what they can do because it is, it can be very scary to to do something way out of your comfort zone with a disease that can sometimes be very very serious. If your blood sugar goes too low that can be life-threatening. And if your blood sugar goes too high, that can also be life-threatening. Um, so a lot of people like to stay in very controlled situations. So something like Project 50 and 50, where we are you know, going into remote areas with diabetes, we're repeatedly going into, we're repeatedly you know, exercising, putting ourselves in extreme situations. Um, that's very rare within the community. Um, but we're trying, we're doing this exactly for that reason to show that you can really do whatever you want to do with this disease. If that means you want to go climb Denali, you're hundreds of miles away from the nearest pharmacy, but that's okay. You can plan and prepare for it and go go do that. And then you can, and this is kind of expands to, to anything that you want to do with a disease. And that's kind of, again, the mission of this project was to prove that um, it doesn't have to be climbing mountains. It can be something completely different. But again, it is it is really challenging. The way I like to kind of summarize diabetes for, for people who who don't quite understand how complex it can be. It's kind of like, imagine a super complicated math equation with a ton of variables, except those variables are always changing and there's never really a constant that you can take a basis off of. So exercise can affect your blood sugar levels. Sleep can affect your blood sugar levels. The weather can affect your blood sugar levels. There's so many things that can affect it that really it can be hard to manage, but it's kind of like through planning and repetition and experimenting kind of with your with your management, you can really figure out how to how to do what do what you want to do with the disease. Man, very well said, guys. Um, 
Yeah, thank you for taking us back. I, I guess I was ta- I was taking it for granted just because I, I do know not a lot, but my, like I said, good roommate of mine um, dealt with it for it was dealing with it every day of his life, and so I got this firsthand experience just to see. And you know, if I never saw that, I, I wouldn't know anything different about him. But um, he he is thankfully an active guy, loves to do all kinds of stuff. Um, so so before this experience. Um, I know both of you had quite a bit of outdoor experience, but but maybe before you even started getting into that, uh, when you were both um, diagnosed with this as children, did you at all feel hindered in any way in your life? And was that desire to be outside, was it some sort of rebellion against, I don't know, maybe fear from your parents or fear of, of, of insulin getting out of control? Um, could you talk about that a little bit? Sure. You know, I think one of the things that was important to Michael and I was was promoting this positive message. And I think it's a way for us to kind of pay it forward to our experience that we both had as as kids growing up. So I was actually diagnosed when I was nine years old and I had a professional or an endocrinologist is basically the medical professional that helps you manage your diabetes. From from the get go, she was very adamant about making sure that I was a kid first. And then we, we kind of handled diabetes second. And I think that's really important for kind of how, how you view life with this condition. Michael and I both work in a space now where we work with a lot of families that uh, have recently diagnosed kids. And, you know, I think if you kind of view this condition as a, as a hindrance, if you view this condition as a curse, uh, it kind of, that's what comes to fruition. And I think if you're able to kind of create your own narrative for life with this condition and saying that, you know, I'm a person first, I'm an outdoor enthusiast first, and then we'll figure out how to manage life with this condition second. It really kind of dictates how you take control of diabetes. Um, I think for me, like I I was diagnosed at age 10. um, So that was in 2004. And it was definitely, I didn't have such a positive experience with my healthcare team. And I did feel very kind of limited or almost like a a stay-at-home hospital patient with diabetes where I felt that was at the time where you could only eat a certain number of carbohydrates a day and you had to measure out all your meals and there was not so much freedom with what you could do with your diabetes compared to today. But what really kind of changed my perspective on, on the disease and kind of living with a lifelong chronic condition was I actually attended a, a diabetic summer camp. Um, so basically in Kings Canyon National Park, where eventually I worked and Patrick as well, there's a there's a camp called Bearskin Meadow. And kids, teens, families, they have a bunch of sessions there. And um, you go there and, and you basically, you hang out with a bunch of a bunch of other type one diabetics. And, and it's it's a summer camp and you you feel, you don't feel so isolated or alone, which I think is a huge part of of this disease. And when when you're when you're in the general public, you oftentimes feel like you're the only one that has this. And and that's really tough, especially as a kid. Um, so so going to this camp and 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 for the first time in my life seeing, you know, 150 other diabetic kids that are that are living with the condition and thriving with it. And then also being able to go there and do all the activities that that I that I really enjoyed, like backpacking and camping and and hiking and and doing all these things and realizing it there was like a sudden almost like flick of a switch or or the light bulb turned on to where I was like, dang, I really can do 
do this with diabetes and like it's not stopping me i just have to figure out how to how to how to work around this disease or make this make this work for me to where i can go do it so so for me it was it was going to that's really kind of what started my whole outdoor um i guess you could call it a career in this case but like i went on a three-day backpacking trip as a 12 year old and that was with a group of 15 diabetics and from that point on it it, it just kind of spiraled upwards towards like I'm going to do the John Muir Trail by myself because I know that diabetes isn't going to inhibit that. And I'm going to go climb Denali because I know that diabetes can inhibit that. And kind of like surrounding yourself with with a community of people that are um, were going through the same condition as you was as a kid was invaluable. And that's kind of, yeah, again, what Patrick says, we we want to pass forward that that message that, you know, you surround yourself, it's, uh, diabetes is a very isolating condition. And if you can find a community that, that you can surround yourself with that supports you and, and helps you figure out solutions to the problems you're having, that's kind of how you can really become confident and, and successful with, while managing the disease. So we want to thank our sponsor, Athletic Brewing, for promoting a healthy lifestyle through making some of the world's best non-alcoholic craft beer. They make excellent tasting NA for healthy, active, modern adults. They use certified all-organic grains, and each can of non-alcoholic beer is only between 50 and 70 calories. They have IPA, golden ale, stouts, and tons of seasonal offerings. And recently, they actually just took home the gold medal at the U.S. Open Beer Championships for their Double Hop IPA. If you would like to get your hands on some, you can save 15% by using the code ADVENTURE at athleticbrewing.com. Athletic Brewing, the best tasting way to keep your promises. And I also want to thank our sponsor, CS Instant Coffee, for making this show happen. They make 100% Arabica Instant Coffee. They use compostable packaging, and each package makes about 20 ounces of coffee. So I'll take one of those with me on an overnight trip, and it makes two pretty good-sized cups of coffee. And it's an awesome feeling knowing I can just throw that in my backpack, find some hot water, and I'm good to go. Save 20% by using the code ADVENTURE at csinstant.coffee. Man, and you can just, I mean, just put a blank space where you say, where you guys are saying type one diabetes and that blank space can just be filled in with literally anything any one of us are dealing with, um, whatever condition, whatever, probably what would you perceive as a problem or hindrance. And man, this is, I I commend you guys. I really do. This is awesome. And and so when you, when you got to, um, hearing from some of the challenges that you're dealing with, uh, just kind of maintaining daily life um, and also doing kind of more extreme things with type 1 diabetes and also with Patrick's, uh, you know, lack of better term, lack of mountaineering experience. You guys didn't ease into the experience. You went right for Denali first. Um, that's an episode in itself. But can you just tell us why did you do Denali first? And honestly, how did it go? Yeah, so I can kind of, I'll, I'll give my little Denali side, but Patrick's also got a, a fun patch. So I had done Denali before in 2017. So I, um, and the reason we did it first was um, Denali has a climbing season of about April to, to late June. 
Um, and the reason for this is if you go before April, the avalanche conditions as well as just extreme cold make the mountain kind of unsafe to climb. You're risking frostbite, um, hypothermia, and a lot of the the more kind of environmental conditions and um, injuries are, are a lot more prevalent in the early season. And then if you go too late, that's when it starts to get too warm and the glacier starts to break apart. Um, so you're going to see more of the crevasses open up and the snow bridges are going to start to collapse. So kind of May to June is pretty much the most optimal time to climb the mountain just due to the conditions that are on the mountain. And the rest of the trip, basically, like we wanted to climb all these mountains in the summer just because it would be the fastest time to climb them. Um, otherwise, we'd have to deal with a lot more snow on on some of the mountains and then just general weather conditions. So Denali had to be first. And another reason for that was the, the official timer of um, – Project 1550 or any FKT for or fastest known time for for the 50 high points starts at the summit of the first mountain and ends at the summit of the last mountain. Uh, and Denali can take up to three weeks to climb due to the weather conditions. So for us, it made the most logistical sense to to use Denali as our starting point so we could spend, you know, 10 days climbing up the mountain, hit the summit, start the clock, and then get down the mountain and onto the next one as fast as possible. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. So for we still did a very accelerated climb on Denali. We did it in 10 days, and the average trip, I believe, is 22. So we still did a very fast climb on Denali, but what that did in hindsight was uh, save us, you know, 10 to 20 days on our timeline compared to if we tried to do it in the middle of the trip or as the last peak. Um, and then also all the gear that was required for Denali wasn't truly necessary for the rest of the trip. So we didn't want to be carrying skis, all this expedition gear in our van where we were already pretty cramped for space. So logistically, it just made the most sense to climb Denali. And um, I think for us, getting that portion done was almost like a huge weight off of our shoulders because the success rate on Denali is about 50% due to a lot of a lot of things. But, you know, it's 13,000 feet of climbing. It's Alaska, which is notorious for terrible weather. Like you're pulling a sled behind you. So you each have 120 pounds of gear. Like it's a like I said, it's an expedition on its own, let alone like one of the the forty nine, one of the fifty. So we went if we went into that, and that was kind of interesting because it was like, well, if we if we fail on this one, that kind of ruins the whole project. Um, so so we went into it really really gunning up that mountain to try, kind of get the weight off of our shoulders, and then be able to use the momentum of like, well, if we've done Denali, we can definitely do the rest of this trip. But yeah, so I'd done the mountain before. Um, I kind of knew. And I had done quite a lot of alpine climbing in terms of in the Cascades and in Washington and the Pacific Northwest. And then also living in Norway for two years, I was able to, to get quite a, quite a bit of technical ice climbing and, and mountaineering and ski touring under my belt. So I, I feel very comfortable on that setting, um, on glaciers, on you know snow and ice. So for me, going on to Denali was, was very much so um, just another day in the mountains, whereas for Patrick, who had put it on crampons two months prior for the first time. It was definitely a, a, a bit more heart pounding for him. Um, but for me, Denali was 
was very straightforward and definitely some tough days, but because I had done it before and because I felt very physically fit for it, um, I found it relatively easy of a mountain compared to the first time I did it. I definitely took the guide role in that case because it was Patrick's first time on a multi-week expedition. It was Patrick's first time being in the Alaska range or really doing anything that big. So Patrick, I was kind of his private guide up the mountain and he was, uh, he was just kind of, kind of holding on (laughs) to get to the summit and back down, but I'll kind of let Patrick. And then I guess diabetes wise, logistically, the biggest challenge was Denali because it is so remote, you have to fly onto the glacier. And that means that if anything goes wrong, diabetes wise, you have to figure it out. You can't, you can't go to the pharmacy. You can't ask, you know, the ranger on the mountain if they have extra insulin because that's not something they bring with them. So it's all on you. It's complete self-reliance on Denali. Um, and evacuation, if it's a storm, you can't get evacuated until that storm's gone. So so really, like, if anything goes wrong, we had to deal with it with diabetes. So that meant bringing extra double, triple, quadruple of everything we needed, as well as insulate. Because of the extreme cold, we had to insulate our insulin, which meant both of us were carrying insulin inside of a thermos, like a hydro flask, and then we would sleep with that inside of our sleeping bag to prevent it from freezing. And then diabetes, with you know all technology, if it gets too cold, it stops working. And for us, we rely on we rely on Dexcom continuous glucose monitors and our our tandem insulin pumps. And we would have to you know have strategies to keep those warm when it's negative twenty five, negative thirty degrees outside. So just all of that added on to then climbing up a twenty thousand foot mountain um, that is already extremely tough can was kind of the biggest logistical challenge diabetes wise and then because you're also you know using so many so much energy you're having to reduce your insulin levels eat more carbs and balance this all while also trying to get adequate sleep so it's kind of like taking a really really hard thing to do and then throwing a couple more chores on top of it and that's you know climbing denali with diabetes patrick anything to add to that yeah you know my experience was was certainly unique i I love a supper fest as much as the next guy. And, you know, I've done 30 day expeditions in the Everglades and pretty harsh environments. And Denali was just something that was uh, a beast of its own. And um, just kind of talking about comfort zones, this was something that was, you know, I was definitely pushing, pushing new boundaries for myself. Um, kind of backtracking a little bit, talking about that nonprofit. Uh, that we've got going on in North Carolina. So about two days before we left for Denali, we wrapped up a week-long residential summer camp for kids living with type 1 diabetes in North Carolina. And actually, during that camp, I picked up a kind of respiratory infection from from one of the kids. So I started the trip with uh, with this cold. And as we kind of progressed, we noticed that some of the, the symptoms of this cold were, were worsening. We kind of attributed a lot of my ill feelings towards what was what we pictured was kind of this cold just getting worse. I started taking some antibiotics and things weren't really getting better. And, you know, we, we keep <laughs> ascending to higher and higher elevations. To, by the point we, we summited and were descending, I was in pretty bad shape. 
And looking back in retrospect, we actually have determined now that I was experiencing something called high-altitude pulmonary edema, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners are probably familiar with. But essentially, it's uh, a condition that happens where the partial pressure in the air is so low at such high elevations that your lungs can start to fill with fluid. Um, So by day, I'd probably say day 10 of the expedition, I was actually in pretty bad shape. And I was, you know, telling Michael that it it actually felt like I was breathing through a straw. And at one point, I think I even told Michael that it felt like I was drowning. So by the point that we we were back on the glacier waiting for the plane to pick us up, I was in I was probably in the worst shape that I've ever been in my entire life where I was vomiting and my my blood glucose levels actually started getting low and I wasn't able to get enough sugar. Um, I wasn't able to ingest enough sugar because I kept vomiting up the, the simple sugars that I was eating. So I actually gave uh, an emergency hormone, which is called glucagon, which was able to bring my blood sugars up. But that was probably looking at the, the expedition or Project 1550 on a macroscopic scale is probably the scariest day for me. Um, so Denali was, was, certainly, was certainly a challenging one and one that I'm glad that I have under my belt and, and can check it off my list. Yeah, that, uh, yeah, like I said, you guys didn't really ease into this, but you know, thanks for that um, explanation, Michael. That makes a lot more sense now. And also psychologically to have Denali done, first of all, it's almost in freaking Russia. Um, It's so far from everything else. And I know number two, you did Hawaii. I mean, those must have both felt uh, uh, like, well, you can just focus on the 48. Um, I I assume you probably thought Denali was going to be the hardest. Uh, Did that end up being true? Or was there a surprise um, number of difficulties along the way that you maybe didn't realize? For me, like Montana was definitely the one that became the hardest very quickly. And that was, there was a lot of things that went into Montana, but basically um, we had, so we had, yeah, checked off Alaska. We had checked off Hawaii and then we had hit the East coast. So we had been knocking these peaks off super quickly. They were very non-technical climbs. Um, A lot of them, we actually kind of did jogs to get them done faster. We would trail run some of them. And then we started heading heading kind of to the Dakotas, and then we hit Montana. And at this point in the um, – this one became kind of probably the, the the biggest part of the project and sort of like a very um, life-changing and definitely project-changing moment for, for both Patrick and I was, was Montana. We had arrived to our original trailhead, and we got there at like 3 in the morning, and the road was blocked by a log – so we opted to go to the other trailhead, which extended our hike by a couple miles. We were planning on doing 24 miles in one day up to Granite Peak, which is a very remote, not very seldom climbed or not very often climbed mountain in the in the Beartooth Range in uh, near Billings, Montana. And so we went to the to the um, alternate trailhead and looked at the map and started hiking. Um, and we knew it was going to be a longer day now, probably about 28 miles. And it was going to be about a 6,000, 7,000 foot day of, of climbing. Um, but I had read the trip reports and, and they said, you know, in, in, in July, late July, it's, it's usually snow free and it's a pretty straightforward climb. And we started hiking and we had gotten 
we knew there was a cutoff that would take us to the mountain and we it was supposed to be around mile 12 on the trail and, and we got to mile 12 and it wasn't there and we kept going and it was mile 16 and 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 the cutoff hadn't come and I was looking at my G, my GPS and you said we were on the wrong trail and eventually we saw a, a climbing range or a ranger and you know we chatted with him and we're like yeah we're, we're going to climb granite you know and he's like oh why'd you take this trail and we're like oh you know the other other trailhead was was closed and he's like oh no there's there's actually a gravel road that you have to take around the log that could have taken you to your original trail and we're like okay well we're out here already so a little too late for that and then he's like this is a really long way to to go to granite peak like you've got a really really long day ahead of you we kept on trekking and we basically got to the point where there was no cutoff and we had to make our own cutoff so we found like a drainage that led to the to the valley that was behind Granite Peak, and we ended up cutting across this drainage, and we popped up over this drainage, and there was just snow everywhere, um, tons more than 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 what we expected. So we didn't actually bring any any tra- crampons or um, any sort of trail spikes for our for our trail runners. We did have ice axes, we had a rope, we had rock protection because we knew it would be a technical climb. Um, but we definitely didn't have optimal snow gear. Um, and at this point, we were still able to to walk across the snow fine. It was pretty soft and um, wasn't too icy or anything. And so we kept going to get to the base of Granite Peak. And by the time we had gone to the base of Granite Peak, so not even not even to the summit, to about 11,000 feet, we had done 30 miles that day. Um, and this was also on limited sleep as well. And uh, it was about three hours until the sun was going to go down. And there was like a, a, a snow gully with um, that led up to the, the final summit ridge of Granite Peak that we ended up going. We started going up. At this point, we had got the rope out. I was leading. Patrick was following. We had ice axes out. And I was slowly kind of having us make our way up this snow gully. And it just got a lot tougher than 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 I would have expected. I expected us to take 30 minutes or so to get up this gully. 30 minutes took about three hours. And we finally got to the top and, and we managed to go tag the summit. But on the way down, we got back to the summit ridge. And I, my dad at the time was communicating with us via uh, Garmin inReach. We were, we were sending him messages saying, you know, the, the other trail is is open, um, so we'll meet you there. Just drive the van there, and, and we'll meet you there. And we, 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 looked down, we looked down the spine of the mountain, and it's pitch black at this point. I think it's around 1 in the morning or something like that. And it's, it's freezing cold. You know, we're at 13,000 feet, and I, we've got one rope, which is 60 meters, so we could do 30-meter rappels down the face of the mountain, or we could go down the the spine of the mountain which we hadn't hadn't climbed up so we didn't know what the down climbing would be like and and at that point patrick made the call that you know we we can't descend this in the dark it's just too unsafe so we ended up actually doing an emergency bivy at thirteen thousand feet where patrick and i sat down in our backpacks put on all our layers got our emergency blankets out and we just huddled together got a little our bromance going and just started you know shivering through the night until the sun came up um and that was i mean i don't know how much sleep patrick got but i didn't get a wink of sleep that whole night i was just so cold um ours everything was wet because we had been trudging through the snow all day and 
definitely got below freezing and it was just miserable. And um, luckily we had enough food and everything to, to, to remain properly fueled up. But once the snow came, once the sun came up, we started, we looked at the ridge and we decided, you know, we can't go down that. So we decided to opt to start rappelling down the face and the rock quality was pretty low. So, so you would rappel and I would start rappelling and then Patrick would say, no, 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 this rock's moving. We can't rappel off of that. So I'd have to find something new to rappel off of. And then because we had a 60 meter rope and not two 60 meter ropes, um, we had about uh, 2000 feet to rappel down, which with a 30 meter rope takes hours and hours and hours. And after a lot of very sketchy rappels, we eventually got to the base of the mountain. And on the last rappel, our rope got stuck. And so I couldn't pull the rope down. And we had left a lot of our gear because the rock quality was so low. We had left a lot of our gear as um, anchors to, to rappel off of. So I don't think we had enough slings for me to ascend back up the rope to see where it was stuck. And both of us were so exhausted at this point that, you know, the rope was just just not worth retrieving and we were at the point where we didn't need the rope anymore um but we were on a pretty steep snow incline at this point um and of course we didn't have crampons um and so we had to start kind of descending on our our hands and knees using our ice axe to secure ourselves and patrick started descending and i think he went probably about 60 feet down and then slipped and started sliding down this this face and i don't remember how far he went but he started going went pretty fast and then just slammed into um a patch of rocks below that that kind of stopped his his climb or stopped his fall and like from my perspective i had just seen patrick slide you know 50 yards however far it was and hit rocks and there was dust that flew up in the air so to me i thought to myself you know patrick's Patrick's either severely injured or like something is up. Like there's no way that he's okay from that fall. Um, and at that time, as soon as he had hit the rocks, I slipped and fell. And um, I basically was using my ice axe and I was trying to self arrest on the snow. But the the snow basically was because it was the springtime snow and the sun would hit it um, and melt it. And then the the um, nighttime temperature would freeze it again. It was very weird, patchy ice. And then it would be soft and icy and soft. And I was trying to self-arrest, but my ice axe was just cutting through the snow and not stopping me. And I was picking up more and more and more speed at this point. Um, and I had gone down the fall line. So instead of stopping where Patrick was, I was continuing to barrel down this this mountain and I was trying to figure out how to stop. I was trying to use it, whatever I could, my elbows, my knees, anything I could to try to stop myself. And then I lost my ice axe. It uh, got ripped out of my hands. And then I knew that I was not in a good situation because I was shooting down this mountain very fast towards, a, I knew there was piles of rocks and I knew at some point there was a drop off to where basically like if I didn't stop, I'd fly off some sort of cliff and, and then, probably take a 20 foot fall so at this point i knew i was going to hit something so i kind of wrapped myself into a ball i put my hands behind my neck to try to protect the the neck and then i just knew i was going to hit something and i don't recall if my feet or my head hit first but i hit one patch of rocks and i had enough momentum to to fly into the air and then do a somersault and hit another patch of rocks 
and continued to tumble until I came to a, a stop on my back. It was kind of one of those moments where you like stop and you're like, am I alive? Like, is this real life right now? And at that point, I started kind of like, luckily, Patrick and I had done a lot of first responder training. And I started kind of doing a self-assessment to where I was wiggling my toes, wiggling my fingers, making sure that I was kind of okay before I tried to start moving around. I noticed like a huge amount of pain in both my femurs. Um, My ankles were really painful. My shin was super painful. And then, and I could see that like my, the lower half of my, my, um, my pants were all ripped up and, uh, then the pain kind of started hitting me and I realized like, yes, I'm alive, but something's definitely not like, I definitely couldn't, couldn't, I tried to like slide up a little bit and then my legs were both just screaming in pain. So I could hear Patrick and he was shouting down to me asking if I was okay. And he started to slowly make his way down to me while I was trying to figure out like what exactly was wrong with me. Um, I took off my helmet and my helmet was all bashed up. Both my, like I said, both my legs were in extreme amount of pain. So I could see that both my thighs had were swollen. My ankles were starting to swell up and I was going into some form of shock at that point. I was shivering and it was like 70 degrees outside. So it didn't quite make sense. So what'd you guys do? So at that point, Patrick got to me um, and we spent probably 15 minutes doing an assessment to where, and then we we ended up pressing the the SOS button on my on the the Garmin inReach that we were using, um, and then search and rescue came and helicoptered me out to Billings, Montana, where I was in the hospital for three days, and they took um, Patrick as well out. But Patrick was was okay. He went to urgent care, nothing wrong. Magically, somehow, I didn't have any broken bones. I had a partial collapsed lung at this point um and then just a lot of muscle and and some ligament strains and damage um so i couldn't walk for um about four to five days i was on crutches um and at this point the 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 project came to kind of a screaming halt um this was i believe day 25 or day yeah day 20 let's see it was day 21 on our timer when the accident happened. Um, so I ended up having to fly back to Concord, California to do some, some rehab where I was, you know, getting back to working normally. And Patrick hung out in Montana for about a, a week. And then he ended up, he ended up continuing. We had a discussion to where it was like, realistically, I am not in the condition to continue to do the peaks such as Wyoming or, or some of the larger peaks. So Patrick was going to continue to do those. Um, so we could still continue that 50 and 50. And then he found some partners along the way to do Rainier, Hood, and Wyoming with. And then I was going to stay at home to rehab until I was in shape enough, if I was able to, to get out there and hike the few remaining that were left. Um, so what ended up happening was was Patrick climbed, I think, six or I don't know how many without me, but he ended up climbing six that I had not done before. Um, some I had done previously. And then we ended up in Colorado, actually, at Mount Albert. I, I felt good enough to start climbing again to where I flew out and, and climbed the, the remaining peaks with, with Patrick. But yeah, that was definitely, you know, you never think of yourself as, you always hear about it. You always hear about people getting helicoptered out, but you never think you're ever going to be the one. So so for me, that was that was kind of the definitely the hardest, probably hardest day of my life, but definitely the hardest peak that we climbed, or in this case, 
fell down on in the project. Man, well, I appreciate you telling that story. I hate that that happened. I'm glad you're okay, and I'm glad you even got the chance to come back out and you know continue the project, missing a handful of mountains. Uh, Patrick, was that what was going through your mind? Did, did you did you say you considered uh, maybe? putting the project on hold and and, and then you know how did you continue logistically because i'm sure uh michael you were also you know helping drive the the van as well yeah you know i think the accident during the accident itself it's it's interesting how valuable training and you know practicing for these situations comes into play you know i think we we really got hyper-focused and were able to kind of do everything we needed to do to get off of the mountain in a, in a safe manner. Um, but then as we got further removed from the accident is when kind of all the emotions started to kind of sink in. And um, yeah, I mean, that's when it, it, it definitely kind of the, the magnitude of the situation really became apparent that <laughs> who cares about the project at this point? Like we, something really serious could have happened to the point that, you know, Michael might not have been with us anymore. So we definitely gave some time and some space to just kind of emotionally process everything that had happened during the this time, you know, Michael was in the hospital and was kind of popped up on a lot of uh, pain meds. So, we were having a lot of conversations with Michael's parents. His dad was actually in the hospital with us and we were kind of able to talk through a lot, a lot that had happened and kind of figure out what our next steps were. Um, we waited until we were at a point where Michael had some mental clarity and was kind of off some of the heavier pain meds where we could begin to discuss what the future of the project looked like. And at that point we had realized that project 50 and 50 had become much bigger than just Michael and myself climbing these mountains. There was thousands of followers from the type one community that were <laughs> following us on social media that, you know, were reaching out kind of asking what were the next steps going to look like and kind of together as a team, we decided that it was it was imperative that we finished Project 50 and 50. Kind of going back to some of my experience, mountaineering was something that was fairly new to me. Uh, I had built a lot of confidence, you know, doing Denali and doing some of the bigger peaks kind of on the front end of the trip. But losing Michael was, was something that definitely took a lot of the wind out of my sails uh, when kind of looking at some of the peaks that we still had to had to complete, uh, particularly kind of looking at, you know, Rainier and Gannett Peak in Wyoming. So kind of the, the biggest things logistically was finding competent climbing partners that had mountaineering experience and crevasse rescue experience um, was kind of the biggest steps logistically that we had to figure out in order to keep the momentum of the project going. And I was really fortunate that I had a, a friend in the Bay Area in California, who did have a lot of those skills that we were looking for, probably not to the proficiency that Michael was at, but skills high enough or to to a high enough caliber that I felt safe climbing with with him. And his name was Kevin. So, you know, I, I knocked out some of the easier peaks kind of out west. I knocked out Idaho, Utah, Arizona, and Nevada. And then we kind of lumped all of the more class four, class five peaks together that I was able to utilize Kevin with. So um, I picked Kevin up in California and we we knocked out Rainier, which had pretty terrible conditions, to be honest. But 
nothing that was too sketchy. Uh, we knocked it out kind of without a hitch. Within 24 hours, we were able to summit Mount Hood. Um, and then the real zinger, which <laughs> was uh, Wyoming or Gannett Peak. And uh, Gannett Peak is a 40-mile round-trip climb where you're, basic, you're basically uh, gaining 9,500 feet in elevation within about a 24-hour period. So that was one that was definitely... That was definitely on my radar since the inception of the project, one that, you know, kind of kept me up at night. And truthfully, Gannett Peak was probably comparable to my hardest day on Denali. So I would say it was probably my second hardest climb. So once we were able to get that one under our belt and safely get down, um, I knew that that we were going to be able to finish Project 50 and 50 within our within our allotted time. So that was definitely kind of the, the, the gasoline we needed to kind of fuel the, the tail end of the expedition. And so, yeah, Gannett, a lot of people think it's, the, you know, the Grand Teton that's the highest in Wyoming, but it is not. And uh, Gannett is not well known and it's pretty freaking remote. <laughs> yeah, that's a, it's quite a challenge. Now, I, I know that um, probably the most memorable mountain, it, it, maybe it's Granite Peak just for all the wrong reasons. Um, but would, could you both mention, you know, what was something, what was your most memorable mountain or summit in, because uh, I know a lot of them aren't really mountains, especially my home state of Florida, uh, Britain Hill, which I saw you guys were wearing full expedition gear for, which is hilarious. Um, was there a mountain for both of you that just was uh, positively the most memorable? Um, yeah, I'll start. So for me, um, I've been thinking about this actually for a couple of days now because there were definitely some really cool hikes. Like I loved Katahdin in Maine and I, I really loved actually the Dakotas as weird as that sounds. But, um, for me, it was Mount Elbert in Colorado. And that was because of, it was the first mountain I had come back from since, since my accident. Um, and it was, it was definitely not an easy going from, going from like not being able to walk to then then showing up to a mountain that had 4,000 feet of climbing and was a 14er was kind of like a like I was definitely nervous going into the climb of like would I be able to do this and I've always been like a very active person and for me like being injured and not being able to walk was extremely terrifying for me um because I just that's that's what I you know that is that is my life right there is kind of like going outside and doing fun things and using my body to its full full capacity and and kind of showing up at Mount Elbert and we had an amazing group join us of these just totally awesome like badass type one diabetics like we had someone having we had someone who you know he he does ultra marathons all the time with diabetes we had um we had someone that had climbed 47 of the 14ers in Colorado and like seeing this community like show up to this hike and then actually completing the hike and feeling good during the whole thing was like such a surreal moment of like happiness to 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 be back and and to feel like I was back to my normal self um so for me Albert in Colorado and and was just like such a such an awesome experience and such a, a huge confidence booster and 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 um, kind of rebuilt what I felt I lost when I when I fell off Granite Peak because definitely like for for the weeks after falling off of, of that mountain I didn't feel like myself at all. I felt very much out kind of like checked out of everything. So kind of getting back on that mountain and kind of conquering 
you know, the fear of, of, of climbing again was, was, was really a big moment for me. And, and that became my favorite peak because of that. Yeah, I think mine was probably Mount Whitney in California. Uh, to me, Mount Whitney really embodied everything that we were trying to do with Project 50 and 50. Um, in addition, I basically, this was post the accident, so I had just done three or four climbs completely by myself, and it was, I, I basically hit my low with Project 50 and 50, and, um, you know, I kind of entered this woe is me mentality, and when we arrived to Lone Pine in California, which is kind of the closest, big, closest town to the Whitney portal, um, we had this group of about 20 people who came out to back Project 50 and 50, and they came from North Carolina, they came from all over California, just people from all over the country that were there for the purpose of supporting this movement that we were trying to do. Um, in addition, it was the first time that I saw Michael since he had flown back to California and he was joined by um, his entire family. And then just the climb itself was, you know, the perfect suffer fest. There was 18 hours of climbing over, you know, close to 27 miles. We had 6,800 feet of elevation gain and there was a perfect Sierra thunderstorm during all of it. So it had all the elements of adventure that we love. Uh, with just this really awesome community and it you know to me it just was this tangible experience that really embodied what project 1550 was all about dang guys what an emotional roller coaster um something you absolutely couldn't have foreseen uh when planning this trip and i'm just yeah i, I mean i don't know how you feel about it but it's so cool that you continued and, and assessed that and um, even Michael, you got back out there, even after, you know, that could keep people from getting on the, a mountain at all for years. Um, so yeah, again, congratulations. Um, so, you know, once you guys get past some of those challenges, um, and you're all kind of on the home stretch, uh, what, what, what was it like dealing with the, what, was it ever mundane? It almost seems like you did a good job of breaking it up, making the sections of the trip challenging, not saving like the whole Midwest or the whole Southeast all for one big clump. You did a good job of mixing it all together. Was that intentional or did the route just work out that way? So we, we ended up actually to, to optimize our route or our, to make it as fast as possible. What we did was we used a, an application that delivery drivers use to determine the fastest routes between points. So that was actually just completely due to a computer algorithm telling us that this would be the fastest way to go. But for us, um, I think what kept it from being mundane was that we were constantly meeting people or have people joining us on these hikes. And we would be able to, you know, interact with them and hear their stories. And and a lot of these people, of course, had type 1 diabetes. So we were able to to hear to hear their their struggles with the disease and and I think Patrick and I are very lucky to where we come from from very we're very well supported with our with our disease management and and hearing stories of people that maybe aren't weren't as lucky as us was kind of very eye opening um but throughout the whole trip I mean you could argue I would say one of the best experiences I had was actually in South Dakota which is in the middle of nowhere like we drove <laughs> 
Um, I think we drove like 10 hours to get there and, and I was exhausted. Patrick was exhausted, but we met this amazing family that came out to join us and, and they told us their, their whole story of, of diabetes and kind of all the struggles they had with it. And kind of like just hearing all these stories along the ways, it, it became much less so about mountain climbing and much more so about hearing, hearing stories, you know, giving advice, giving suggestions, you know, showing that there's there was there's there's definitely hope and and nothing you know this doesn't need to stop you um it really kept it exciting throughout the whole trip it just consistently interacting with people and and i think for me as well i hadn't seen that much of the united states and and being able to drive to all of these states well, and see how now. different it yeah exactly um it was just yeah it was it was great i think you know having the opportunity to find humor and a lot of it as well really kept us going. You know, there's, there's multiple times on the expedition where we're driving 10 hours to go to Hawkeye point in Iowa, which is like a drive up summit or Mount Sunflower in Kansas where, you know, you're just driving hours and hours kind of out of the way to reach, <laughs> to reach this arbitrary point in the middle of nowhere. Um, and, you know, just being able to, to kind of stay lighthearted about it and find the humor and some of the climbs that aren't so much climbs really help keep us going as well. I love the diversity of the challenge. You know, you, I see you guys in you know, Illinois sitting in lawn chairs just looking out over a meadow. And it's like, and then, you know, two days before you're in Hawaii and a couple days before that you're on Denali. So just the vastness of the experience definitely makes it a... It, it definitely humorous when you look at the when you look at the list all together and the way you did it, um, and you guys ended in Texas on Guadalupe Peak, and I've been on that one. That's a that's a relatively remote mountain in the sense of like it's not next to a huge highway. It's it's that whole park is kind of just off a beaten path, kind of out in the middle of nowhere. It's gorgeous. Don't get me wrong, but what what made you decide to do it uh, that one as the last one? That one, so our original plan was was to have Mount Whitney be our last one, and that was because both Patrick and I had had led uh, a backpacking trip. He, he led it in 2015, and I led it in 2017, um, called Altitude 14505, which is where we take 9 to 10 teens with type 1 diabetes, and you hike about 80 miles to get to the summit of Mount Whitney. And this is, for most kids... Um, it's one of the the most special trips that they've ever done. And, and as instructors on that trip, we felt that that mountain was, when we think of diabetes and, and kind of improving or boosting the confidence of kids with diabetes, I think that Mount Whitney and climbing Mount Whitney kind of comes to both of our minds. So that was our original plan was to end on Mount Whitney. Um, and then after the after the incident after um granite peak we had to pretty much shift around our schedule and and texas kind of became our um our last peak just logistically speaking um that being said it was it was a pretty awesome way to end the project because we arrived there and we started hiking as the sun was setting and it kind of was it was almost like a very symbolic way of like ending the project was kind of the sun was going down as we were finishing it. So we got to the top at around 9 PM. And, um, well, it's interesting because we started the trip in Denali where the sun never sets. And then we ended the trip in the dark in in Texas with our headlamps on. So it was kind of a symbolic way to end the trip in, in my mind. I love this experience. I love just, I mean, the amount of driving you guys did, I'm sure you got just sick of driving and, 
listening to music and podcasts or whatever you're listening to. Um, what a, what a road trip itself. Did you guys face any challenges or is there any episodes you dealt with, with dealing with type one diabetes? Did you, did you ever run out of something or just have a, have a scare or anything like that? You know, I think one of the things that we're, we're really fortunate, I've been living with type one for 22 years. Mike's Mike, I think you're on 15 years, 14 years. Yeah. You know, we're living in an age now where technology makes life in the backcountry so much more attainable and safer for folks living with type 1. Um, you know, Mike and I both wear a continuous glucose monitor that's made by a company called Dexcom, which basically gives us access to our blood sugars or our blood glucose real time. And we're able to get that information from our cell phone from a receiver, from our insulin pump. So there's a lot of redundancies there. In addition to being able to wear uh, insulin pumps that talk to this continuous glucose monitor, that really there's a lot of checks and balances that that mitigate a lot of the risks that someone living with type 1 could face in the backcountry. So I do think, you know, while it does on paper sound like a very risky expedition, we were able to mitigate those risks and to have a successful <laughs> a successful project um, because of this technology that's available to us. So for myself personally, and I can speak for Mike too, it, it was interesting that diabetes was actually probably the least logistical challenge of this entire expedition thanks to this technology. That's uh, that's amazing. <laughs> here, here we are thinking it would have been, you know, people who think it's going to keep them from doing something. And here you are saying, you know, no, that's not it. it. It's more of the, I don't know, common challenges that make this difficult. That, that's great to hear. That's great to hear to say. Did you have something to add, Michael? Um, yeah, I would say like we definitely did have a couple low blood sugars and, and a couple high blood sugars. But yeah, like he said, I mean, if you if you look back 10 years ago compared to where we are now with diabetes technology, it's like you 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 basically would check your blood sugar five times a day. And uh, that would kind of be your your idea of how to treat your disease, whereas now we get a new blood blood glucose reading every five minutes and we get an idea of it's not just a blood glucose reading. It also tells us like which way is our blood sugar going? Um, so then we know, do we need to treat, do we need to eat carbohydrates? Like the technology that, that, that we have today just provides us with so much information and, and makes, makes managing it so much easier that, that maybe some of the things that I would experience in the backcountry five, 10 years ago, I just would never, never have to worry about now. So I'm thinking when I was doing the John Muir trail, even in 2015, which was four years ago, I experienced low blood sugars all the time. And, and the way I would know that is because I would, I would feel hypoglycemic. I would, I would feel suddenly very low and then I'd have to stop and check my blood sugar, which would mean taking out my blood glucose meter, pulling out a test strip and then pricking my finger. Whereas now my phone alarms me when it thinks my blood sugar is going to drop down low and now it's it's just like i look in my pocket and i know and having that compared to yeah just years ago makes going outside and doing these types of things so much easier and and in my mind it's just it's just makes them so much less stressful compared to previously awesome that's just so great to hear that you know for all sorts of people with all sorts of conditions technology is making this thing possible. Fantastic. So, so what is, the, what is kind of the legacy of this trip in the sense of like, uh, 
What do you want people to take away from it? And what would you like people to know about Type 1 as well as the nonprofit that you guys have started? Sure. Yeah. Kind of our biggest thing is, you know, I think you alluded to it earlier where everyone has their own version of diabetes. Everyone's kind of facing their own struggle. So whether you're living with type one or not, our biggest takeaway is that with a positive attitude, with a positive mental attitude and surrounding yourself with the right tribe that you're, you're able to overcome whatever obstacle that you're facing. And, you know, specifically with, with type one, we basically kind of given a testament or a testimony that the sky is the limit with this condition and uh, with proper planning, with proper care that you can do absolutely anything you want to do. Cool. And, and can you talk about the, the diabetes, is it the diabetes family connection? Yeah. So the diabetes family connection is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that's based in the Carolinas. Uh, we put around, we put on programs year round. So uh, we've got summer camps, we've got family retreats, we've got a teen weekend coming up, um, and our mission is to positively transform life with diabetes through the power of community. So kind of going back to what Michael was saying, where diabetes can be a very isolating condition for a lot of parents. They might be the only ones that they know that are kind of managing their child's diabetes for kids growing up with type 1. They might be the only ones in their schools or on their sports teams that are living with this condition. And basically what we try to do is put on recreation-based programs that are focused on outdoor pursuits um, that really build that community and show people that they're not the only ones that are going through life with this condition. And in addition to providing positive role models that show that really the sky's the limit with type 1. So um, if you're based in the Carolinas or in the surrounding areas, we would love to see you out at a, at a future program. Uh, so be sure you can check us out at www.thedfc.org um, or we're at the Diabetes Family Connection on any social media outlet. I know you guys are going to be doing some some events here soon and I'll post a link to, uh, or you're going to be at some places, I'll post a link with all that. So if people are in the area and they want to meet you and come hear your story and check it out. Um, but thank you guys so much for being on. I really appreciate you taking the time and just going kind of into detail of what this experience looked like and Congratulations again. Pretty awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much, man. Yeah. All right. See ya. See ya. Well, first of all, thank you so much for listening to this episode. It really means the world to us that you want to spend your time with us. If you'd like to help us further, please just leave us a review on iTunes, share us on social media, tell your friends about us. You can become a patron, a supporter of the show for $5 a month at patreon.com slash adventuresportspodcast. And if you know somebody that would make a good guest, reach out. We're always looking for good adventure and outdoor stories. And lastly, thank you to our sponsors whose messages follow right now. Athletic Brewing makes the best non-alcoholic craft beer. Go to their website at athleticbrewing.com and use the code in our show notes to save 15% on your first order. After all this adventure talk, if you're needing some gear yourself, but you need some advice before buying, go to backpacktribe.com where you can ask questions to the owners who have experience with all the gear as well as all of it for sale right there on their website.